We've been going through Leviticus uh, this quarter, and tonight we get to the awkwardest part of Leviticus. And, um, you know, our, the reason we're doing this uh, is because at some point we got to deal with all of Scripture, and we got to deal with the fact that God saw this as important. This was um, Leviticus for a long time in rabbinical schools was the first book of the Bible Hebrew children studied. Um, and so in it, um, God has given us things to consider. And uh, what we've seen all semesters that in much of what we've considered, the New Testament talks about it. And the New Testament gives us really helpful tools that we need to use to understand it. And uh, what the New Testament talks about a lot of these things we'll talk about tonight is about how there, in this there's a shape given to reality. Uh, the New Testament calls it shadows or signs. And what shadows do is shadows give you the shape of something, but they're not the thing itself. So you learn the shape of it ahead of time. Imagine a shadow cast back over history, right? And so the the Jewish people were beginning to understand who God was through these shadows, but Jesus is the reality that comes and fills out the meaning of these shadows. And um, what we get into tonight is... This notion, this is the, the, the kind of the barest notion, and, and what I've done in these three chapters is I've selected a couple of snippets that really um, capture what's going on, um, some kind of, uh, of what's going on throughout all these passages. But does, um, out of curiosity, does anybody know what Stanford's acceptance rate was this year? What is it? 5.69. Who knew 5.69? Yeah. Or round up to 5.7, but there's something to be said for accuracy, right? Um, how did y'all feel when you heard that? This is a safe place. You can be honest. Who said yeah? <laughs> Thank you for your honesty, Jason. Yeah. Right? Jason is, is, is saying what all of us are afraid to say, which is, that's awesome, I love what it says about me, right? What we want to politically communicate to the outside world is like, oh, that's embarrassing, I don't deserve to be here, that's, you know, like... So there's this deep-seated pride that the honest people like Jason can tell us, but then the rest of us are all like, we're slightly embarrassed by our pride about it, so we say some self-deprecating thing that communicates that we're not proud about it and all that kind of stuff. But we're all the same. It's all right. Now, why do I bring that up? I bring it up for this reason. What does exclusion say? Right? What is that? What that is, is this a statistic that Stanford excludes people more than any other school. Past Harvard this year. Harvard... Uh, was more exclusionary than Stanford this year, but this year the only schools that exceed Stanford are two music schools, Juilliard and another one I never heard of. <laughs> Which, so we're not upset about not getting accepted there, right? <laughs> but Stanford is more exclusive than any other school in the country. Because music schools aren't real schools, but that's another conversation. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Y'all are at Stanford. Like... <laughs> But we all felt, I even felt it, I I ride y'all's coattails, I even felt pride when I heard that, right? We actually, we don't want to admit it, really kind of like what it says about us. Exclusive, excluding people can be one of the most like fulfilling or or maybe kind of an exercise that can really puff you up. And what does exclusion reveal or say? 
And I want to propose that it says this. Whatever standard you exclude people according to, so here it's academic, but it's not just academic achievement. It's other, you have to be well-rounded. So there's this sense of it's kind of academic slash well-rounded achievement. What does that reveal about those things? The degree to which you exclude people reveals the intensity with which you hold those values, right? The degree to which you exclude people reveals the intensity with which you hold those values, right? So Stanford holds that value higher than anybody else. We want well-rounded, intelligent individuals, and we're more committed to that value than anybody else because we exclude more people from our institution because we think it's the best place for that, right? The acceptance rate reveals Stanford's zeal for maintaining that elite academic status. It indicates that Stanford's zeal for it might be unrivaled at this point. Right? Beat Harvard. The degree to which you exclude people indicates the intensity of that thing you exclude them according to. Right? How would you feel if next year Stanford accepted 45% of their applicants? it would be embarrassing, right? It would water down your degree. It would in the professional world, right? If all of a sudden Stanford just accepted people like me, you know? Uh, huh, yeah, Van, the best kind of was Vanderbilt. Um, uh, but how would you feel if they admitted 45% of their applicants next year? It would be upsetting. You would feel like I've invested here and they're watering down my investment, right? They're lowering the value of my investment. What happens in these passages is this. There are ritual reasons for... Uh, in these passages, we're giving ritualistic reasons for being excluded from God's presence. What we actually see is God's acceptance rate is lower than, standard, than Stanford's. He's much more exclusive than Stanford or Harvard. Now, he's excluding according to different principles and along different lines. But before you get upset by that, and that is upsetting... It absolutely is, and we're going to wrestle with that tonight. Um, read with me for a moment what I've chosen in chapter 12, 13, 14. I've neglected the passages from 15, but you can read those as well. It's some paradigmatic passages that represent everything that's going on here because there's a number of ways people are excluded from God's presence, and these kind of capture the big picture so that we can talk about it. So, hear now from the Word of the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, If a woman conceives and bears a male child, then she shall be unclean seven days, as at the time of her menstruation she shall be unclean. On the eighth day... RUF just got the most awkward it's ever been in the history of RUF. But wait, we're going to go a step further. And on the eighth day of the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. So there, we've gotten all the awkward words out of the way. Then he shall continue for 33 days in the blood of her purifying. She shall not touch anything holy, nor come into the sanctuary. That's where God is. His presence is signified. Until the days of her purifying are completed. But if she bears a female child, she'll be unclean for two weeks, as in her menstruation. And she shall continue in the blood of her purifying for 66 days. Skipping forward to chapter 13. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and said, When a person has on the skin of his body a swelling or an eruption or a spot, and it turns into a case of leprous disease on the skin of his body... 
Then he shall be brought to Aaron the priest, or to one of his sons the priest, and and the priest shall examine the diseased area on the skin of his body. And if the hair in the diseased area has turned white, and the disease appears to be deeper than the skin of his body, it is a case of leprous disease. When the priest has examined him, he shall pronounce him unclean. The leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes, let their hair hang from, uh, of his head hang loose, and he shall cover his upper lip and cry out, Unclean, unclean. He shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. Uh, this is chapter 14. This is after a number of passages, uh, a number of rituals in which sacrifices are made for the unclean people. And this happens at the end of... Uh, those sacrifices. And he shall kill the lamb of the guilt offering, and the priest will take some of the blood of the guilt offering and put it on the lobe of the right ear of him who is to be cleansed, and on the thumb of his right hand, and on the big toe of his right foot. The grass withers and the flowers fade. This is the word of God. It endures forever. We need his help. So let's pray for it right now. Lord, we thank you for your word. And as we consider this tonight, I pray that um, you would teach us that we would be able to envision in our minds um, what you have for us. Lord, that we would rightly be offended where we need to be offended. Uh, that we would rightly be uncomfortable where we're uncomfortable. And that we would rightly learn about your holiness where we need to learn about your holiness, dear Lord. And we would rightly see Jesus because we need to see Jesus. So be with us, dear God. Teach us, Holy Spirit. In your name we pray. Amen. So, if you didn't think the Bible was bizarre enough, we have gone the most bizarre passages in Scripture. Uh, I'm almost like, uh, I was telling my friend earlier, I'm almost kind of proud of it. It's like a pastoral bucket list of like, boom, preach the passage on skin disease administration. You know, like, never going to do that again, but at least I did it. But, um, but the subject matter itself, seriously, is uncomfortable. Because the subject matter is uncomfortable, but not only that, maybe what's more, maybe what you were uncomfortable with, is it's a story about God excluding people from His presence. Um, and maybe that's a far cry from the way you conceive of God or the way you expect to hear about Him in a Christian setting, even like this one in RUF. But here's our big point tonight. And I'd ask you to maybe hold off on, on your reactions and kind of come along throughout the text before you get too upset and consider what's being taught. And the point is this. This is the big overarching point. If you take home anything, take home this. God is not okay with brokenness. He doesn't compromise with it. He doesn't like any of it. All brokenness upsets Him. Any amount of it, however small, is upsetting to Him. This is a very uncompromising picture, isn't it? For very small reasons, it seems, people are excluded from the presence of of God. God the, the term God uses all throughout Leviticus to describe why people can't be in His presence when, they're, when they have uncleanness or imperfection is holy. All throughout Leviticus, the refrain, the chorus line of the book is, be holy, He calls His people to be holy, because I am holy. And the reason people are excluded from His presence is because He's perfectly holy and He's saying, I can't tolerate anything but holiness in my presence. And what holiness is, we described it some last week. This is the short definition. Um, Holiness is life rightly ordered. Reality rightly ordered. Things working out the way they were intended to. Right? 
And what this is what's happening in these laws. And this is where we start down the trail and hopefully you begin to see the merit of even us considering them. In these laws, we have physical disorder used as an illustration for our spiritual disorder. What's happening in these passages is God is actually using physical disorder as an illustration for our spiritual disordered condition. In other words, here's part of what that means. These are not moral judgments. There is not, it is not because you have bled or because you have skin disease, God has morally judged you that you are wicked. Again, these are actually illustrations. What's being communicated is something is out of the ordinary with our bodies. Our bodies are not working the way they were intended to. And in Leviticus, if we said, it's a big teaching tool where it uses physical visual, visual illustrations. Again, what the New Testament actually calls shadows or signs to teach us about spiritual realities. So these are physical, visually acted out illustrations of our spiritual situation. Uncleanness is not sinfulness. Uncleanness is not sinfulness. It's a ritualistic, it's an illustration of sinfulness. And it, it seems severe, right? When you read the conditions for these people, especially for the leprous person, the, the woman, she has a baby and she's cut off, right? Because she's bleeding from God for a while. Right? The leprous person has to tear his clothes, let his hair hang down, call out unclean, and he has to stay outside of the camp. Right? Again, imagine what it would be like to be that person who has to stay outside and live outside of the camp. It's severe. Now, why? Why is God actually so severe in the way He teaches? And, and before we get into it, I just want to make this point. It's actually because he's a good teacher, and it's actually also because his point is severe. This is, a, this is a primitive culture, right? This is the ancient Near East. There are no smart boards. There's no PowerPoint. There's no printing press. Even if there was, no one can read, right? So discourse, when you're trying to make a point, discourse and lecturing was not the way people learned, Right? How would people learn? What do you think the most effective tool for teaching a large group of people a very, very important point? Tradition and ritual. God just understands pedagogy better than us. He knows that lecturing wouldn't work. And so literally to a, to a touchy-feely people that are not readers, that can't be readers, that don't have text, well, how can he illustrate the point that imperfection is not okay? He makes them experience that imperfection is not okay. How much deeper would the impact be for the lesson? What we're going to say tonight is God doesn't tolerate imperfection. Okay, how much more deeply would you understand that point? If because, this is in chapter 15, if because you're on your menstrual cycle, you couldn't come to church. You would get, wow, God's got a hang-up about blood. You would understand that God has a hang-up about blood much more deeply than it means simply articulating it with words, right? Now, it, granted, still unwieldy, we're going to talk about it, still offensive, but we're going to talk about it. But what I'm trying to say is understand his pedagogy. Understand that he's a good teacher, and he uses different teaching tools to make important points. That's what's going on. And his big point tonight is this. He doesn't compromise with anything that diminishes the glory of the way things should have been. With anything that diminishes life, with anything that diminishes 
human flourishing. He's upset by all of it. God makes a way. And we'll see that at the end. He makes a way to deal with it, but it's not compromise. And He doesn't compromise. He doesn't say, oh, that's okay. We, we, don't have, we don't have to deal with that. I'll lower my standard. He's like, no, no, no. My standard is life, perfect, flawless, flourishing. And I won't accept anything else. So what were the signs? We'll go through this outline. What are the signs where they teach? And what does God do with them? So the first sign, all right, the first rule is this thing that a woman has a child. And when she has a child, there's a period of uncleanness after she has the child, right? It's awkward. First of all, it's not a comment on childbirth and procreation. The Bible glories in that. It's one of God's like highest calling He's given to humanity. The child himself is not unclean, right? So it's not a comment on childbirth itself. God loves procreation. He loves new life. From the beginning, it was one of the great delights of creation. It's not for hygiene's sake, as many scholars might suggest. But notice how we begin to apprehend um, the reason. In verse 7, when is she clean? She's clean when the flow of her blood stops. When the flow of her blood ceases. And it's compared to menstruation, which is talked about more in depth in chapter 15. You should go and read chapter 15. It has more of these details. But it's compared to that in chapter 15. The woman is unclean while she's bleeding, and then she's clean once she stops. Now, here's where we got to understand the imagery that God's been using all throughout Leviticus. What is blood in the Bible? What does blood signify? Over and over and over again, one of the main themes of, uh, of Leviticus. Uh, and it's really not that foreign from us. This is, we don't have to be, think like ancients on this one. Blood is life. Life was, God was teaching them that life was in the blood. They were always connecting Blood is life. Blood is life. Blood is life. Blood being shed was life being poured out. And if blood and life are so intimately connected, and they were to think of it as the same things, again, what are we looking at here? We're looking at a physical illustration of a spiritual condition. What he's saying is this. If blood leaves you, here's what he's saying. is In a sense, that's abnormal. It's not okay. It makes you unfit for my presence. Because this is what's happening. There's, there's life coming out of you. God was saying, I love life so much that one drop of it coming out of your body upsets me. That's his point. He's saying, I love life. That's why she's unclean when life is coming out of her. The thing that signifies life comes out of her and she's clean when it stops. God is saying, I don't associate with death. I don't associate with one drop of it. I'm not okay with it. Anything less than life full and life flourishing. I don't compromise on this issue of life. Now, the, the other odd question, and it's appropriate to ask, is why is the woman unclean longer after she has a girl? And it's hard to say, and there's not a consensus on this. I'll give you my best guess and kind of from the study that I did. But it seems that God is simply reinforcing that your child will also shed blood in the same way you have. And there's a sense in which the woman is unclean because there's, it, it's, a, it's a pointing forward to, and life will drip from her one day as well. God's overall point is, 
I love life too much to be okay with anything that diminishes it, even the slightest. Now, go slightly more awkward. It's in chapter 15. I didn't read it. But in chapter 15, the same thing is said of men's semen. The same thing is said, is it right? You just got even more uncomfortable. You didn't think it was possible. When it's spilled, it also makes him unclean and anything it or he touches unclean. And you see the same lessons being reiterated. Because that's the place where life begins as they conceive it, right? From the male gender, that's his contribution to life beginning in the Bible. It loves sex. It glorifies in sex. I just think God made it. He intended for us to enjoy it. So this is not condemnation of sexuality. This isn't saying sex is dirty. It's saying life is precious. I hate it when one drop of it is wasted. Skin disease. Move on to the next one. Chapter 13 is a list of several different types of skin disease. We, you read that word leprosy. Um, it's not leprosy as we conceive of it today. That's part of it, but there's a, leprosy is kind of a broader category of all kinds of skin disease. So we're not sure what all those skin disease relate to today. But what would happen is, if you broke out in skin disease, you would go see a priest. And a priest was not a doctor. He did not cure you. He was more like an inspector. He told you whether or not your skin disease was of the appropriate class. And disease, what is disease? And maybe now that I've kind of that we've seen the key that God doesn't like blood being spilled, that God doesn't like life pouring out, disease is our bodies not working the right way. Right? It's the body broken. When you're sick, some of us chronically are, all of us periodically are. It's profound, it can be very profound, painful discomfort. It is life diminished. It really is, and that's the way it feels when you're sick. Right? God wants them to say, to see, I'm not okay with that. I love life. Not only that, but what did he call the people with skin diseases to do? They were sent out of the camp, right? Further from God's presence. God's presence was in the center of the camp. It's something we've talked about. Uh, There's this thing called the tabernacle where God signifies his presence. But they're also separated from God's people. So they're not outside the tabernacle, they're outside the camp. Right? Hair down, bandages on their face, and crying out, unclean, unclean. Now what this isn't, that's not a cure. What that is, if you read throughout Scripture, is that's mourning. It's the way people actually mourn in Scripture. It's sorrow. It's grieving. God's saying, I actually want you to visually, viscerally, experientially grieve over sickness. And see that I'm not okay with it. We need to be sad about sickness. In one sense, if if you're beginning to grapple with kind of how uncompromising God is, that He hates anything that doesn't glory life, doesn't protect it, doesn't preserve it, doesn't cause it to flourish, then I think contemplating the cleanliness and all this could actually be one of the most important spiritual exercises you do. When you see the degree to which God does not like anything that breaks His people and breaks His creation. If, if He doesn't tolerate it in the least bit. If you, maybe some of you know, maybe some of you have had cancer before. Um, my sister-in-law had it last year. She's in remission now. But how much cancer do you have to have to feel like something's wrong? 
how much cancer do you have to have for it to rob peace? Before you hear the voice or you feel the sense this is not okay. Well, if you've had it or if you know somebody had it, any amount, no matter how small, is utterly discomforting. One cell of it, if you could measure it that small, one cell of... Someone told you there was one cell of cancer in your body. Completely destroys your sense of peace, doesn't it? You feel, this isn't right. Well, see, God doesn't simply feel that way about one cell of cancer. He feels that way about any drop of blood that comes out of our body. It feels that way about any discomfort we feel. You're right to feel that way about cancer. That's how God feels about those things. He made humanity for flourishing. And that comes in the delight of His presence, being with Him. And He's not going to compromise on anything that diminishes life and flourishing. So then, those are the laws. What do they mean? What is He teaching us if these laws are powerful, physical pictures of our spiritual condition? They're a shadow of heavenly and spiritual realities. These are kind of simple, clear points of illustration. First of all, sin is in all of us. It's in all of us. We only examine a couple of these laws, but if you read chapter 12, chapter 13, 14, 15 in its entirety, you'll see that everybody becomes unclean. Every Israelite would know that no matter what you do, if you attempted to hide, justify, minimize, or explain away your uncleanness, they would know, like, no, 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 I've read it. Everybody becomes unclean at some point. And that was the purpose of what he was saying. Everyone's disqualified from God's presence. It's a physical illustration of a spiritual point. Sin has pervaded all of creation, all of humanity. And far from being unfair, in the sense what that does is that evens the playing field, right? It puts everybody in the same place. It removes any sense of moral superiority. Once you get that, we're all on even footing before God. Sin separated everybody from God. It gets into everything we touch. All throughout these passages, it's not simply that it's in us. It, it, it jacks up everything we try to do, even our best things, right? So, every time someone who's unclean touches something, touches a rag, right? If they try to clean themselves with a rag, literally, they don't become unclean, but the rag becomes unclean. They touch things and the world gets more unclean. doesn't sin. In fact, kind of everything we end up doing, it's even there, right, in our best moments. Isn't it? The problem is not that we need to be more tolerant of sin. Sin's the very thing that's breaking us down. And what we need to see, what God intends us to see, is a God who's intolerant of the thing that's breaking us of any hint of it. And we need to see a God that can do something about it. Before we get there, we see that sin's in all of us. Secondly, we see what sin does to us. Physical illustration of spiritually what's happening. Sin does to us what dirt and disease and decay does to the body. It isolates us. Right? They're sent away outside of the camp. What is, what is your reaction to seeing dirty, sick people? Your first instinct, naturally so, is to put space between you and them. Even if you do, many of you are compassionate. Even if you have that compassion, to even move towards them, you know you actually have to work to move towards them. Because your initial instinct is, I can't be near that. Right? Sickness and decay 
in people's body isolates them then just as much as it does now. Right? God's saying that's what sin does to us. Right? Doesn't our... Think about your dramas. Rivalry, self-pity, anger, selfishness, our unforgiveness, our deceit, our competitions, our jealousy, our insecurity. Isn't that what's dividing us from God and also from each other? It isolates us. doesn't just isolate us. It also eats away at us. In Genesis 4, God says sin is active. It's crouching at your door, hoping to dominate you. See, what diseases do is they eat away at our body, right? It breaks down the body. And sin, unchecked, eats us away as well. It dehumanizes us. It's active. Sin is active. It's not passive. And if nothing's done, anger grows, doesn't it? It grows, and it grows, and it grows. And it initially is this all-consuming fire, and then it becomes this very firm disposition, doesn't it? To where it's just hardness. And you almost don't even feel the rage of anger anymore. You simply feel the hardness of not feeling anymore. Right? Unchecked materialism. Greed just grows and grows and grows. Right? There's no such thing as enough pornography, is there? Sin breaks us down the same way dirt and disease does. If you're a climber, I know some of you do, but even if you're not, in climbing, ropes have a life to them. And you can only use them for so long. And the reason they start to break down is dirt gets in there. And dirt has sharp edges. And slowly over time, that dirt begins to break down the rope. Until eventually, even though it looks fine on the outside, its integrity is gone and it's unsafe. That's what sin does. It slowly erodes us. Maybe, maybe at times, have you ever stepped back and realize you're just kind of growing thin as a person. I don't mean thin physically, I mean superficial, to where in some ways more and more you're becoming just a conglomeration of whatever's marketed to you. Right? Maybe you've had that moment and you're like, I don't, I don't even know if I'm about anything of substance anymore. I think I'm just everything that got marketed to me. Sin eroded your soul. It's powerful. It, eats us away, and lastly, it disfigures us. Skin lesions were a graphic external depiction of disfigurement. Our soul gets warped. The image of God in us gets warped. We don't even know what's right and wrong anymore. We're lost. We're carried around by our passions. Unsure of who we are. We're not even sure what we want anymore. Makes us cold. Makes us less human. So it's a picture of what sin does to us. Physically demonstrated. So it tells us we're all in sin. It tells us what sin does to us, but it also tells us something about God. Doesn't it make you uncomfortable? This passage is intended to make us uncomfortable. That's the point. If you weren't uncomfortable, something would be wrong. Because we haven't encountered God in His holiness if He hasn't made us tremble. If He hasn't made us nervous. If, if what we say in Orient hasn't at times made you tremble at God and His majesty and His holiness, then we've misrepresented Him. His majesty and His goodness and His holiness and His love for what is right and His anger towards anything that breaks His creation is discomforting. Anytime people get anywhere close to a sense of the presence of God in Scripture, it happens in Genesis, it happens in Isaiah, it happens in Revelation, they're terrified. 
we like the idea of a tameable God that's warm, fuzzy, and that's full of love. And, and our definition of love is kind of an, uh, a corruption of what real love is. Love, we like the idea of love of God just being kind of nostalgia and self-affirmation. But the main point of Leviticus is that God is passionate about holiness. The constant refrain is, be holy because I am holy. And holiness is reality the way it was intended to be personally, physically, morally, relationally. This passage is to make us feel the discomfort. You should feel the discomfort of how intensely God is committed to holiness. Exclusion reveals the intensity of your values, doesn't it? And God's not okay with any sin, with any imperfection. It's not because He's mean, but because what's on display here is an often neglected side of love, but love is not love without this, and it's this thing. Love always has the opposition of anything destructive in the person you love. Love, true love, will always oppose in the person you love anything that destroys that person. Love has an anger component to it. Real love is always angry at anything that destroys what you love. God is trying to get our attention on sin and evil and brokenness in a visceral way. And what this challenges us on is the ways that we've compromised or maybe even grown comfortable with the brokenness in us in the world. And I mentioned this last week, so I'll only mention it briefly. I think one of the ways we compromise in the brokenness of the world is we have small dreams. We have small dreams. I think this is one of the choice ways we actually compromise with the brokenness of the world. I don't want to contemplate what's really wrong with the world. Don't make me think about death. Let me set some small, accomplishable goals in front of me and believe that I'll have life if I get there. Right? Academic, professional, relational, financial success. That, that I'll have life once I get to those small places. Now, those things have their place in the kingdom of God. They do. That's another discussion on another night. But when they become the sum of your hope, then your dreams are too small and they don't deal with the real issue. You've actually compromised with sin and death and brokenness. You've kind of given up the battle in some sense. Right? If it's not small dreams, this is maybe more the sin of my generation, folly. Right? I'm, I'm the Seinfeld generation. Seinfeld is about if you can't control it, laugh at it. Right? If you can't control it, Laugh at it. Distract yourself with laughter. But I'm actually more and more convinced that folly manifests itself either through laughter, but actually also through substance abuse. I think for some of us, that's the way we stop. That's the thing we use to stop feeling. Right? We don't know what to do with the discomfort of existence and the discomfort of the brokenness in our lives, in our families, in our bodies, in creation. So we, we choose a chemically induced flight. For a little while. And it works for a little while. It could be small dreams. It could be folly. Lastly, I think some of us have been wounded so deeply by brokenness. Some of us have dark stories of woundedness. That you just numb yourself to it. That your goal is to cease to hope. I don't want to be a person that hopes anymore. It's too scary. And so maybe even in various ways. Maybe through self-mutilation maybe through withdrawal from relationships, you numb yourself to feeling anything or having any hope. Because you can't handle the possibility of hope. 
because you've experienced too much pain. And you're like, there's no way. And, and all of these things, I think we're compromising. And I think God wants us to see that He doesn't compromise with brokenness. But those are some of the ways we compromise. So what does God do about it? If God doesn't accept any imperfection or any drop of life diminished, what does He do? In these passages, uncleanness is contagious. The people were to be avoided. Even physical touch passed on uncleanness. In these passages, uncleanness is set outside the camp. For 1,500 years, from this time until Jesus comes, the Israelites had practiced this. Imagine how much it would be burned into the neural pathways of your life and your family and your understanding of reality. If not for months, not for weeks, not for years, not for decades, for 1,500 years your people had acted this way. And then what happens when Jesus comes? It's understandable the uproar that happens. He comes and He moves toward the uncleanness. He does the exact opposite. In Luke 5, one of a number of stories about lepers, a leper comes to Jesus and he says, If you will, you can make me clean. What's he saying? Now that you've read Leviticus, when he says, You can make me clean, what's he saying? He's saying, You can make me fit for God's presence. Can you do that? Right? Because uncleanness made you, is a physical demonstration of our spiritual condition that we are not fit for God's presence. He's saying, Can you make me fit for God's presence? And Jesus, instead of avoiding the leper, moves toward the, toward the leper. And when he touches him, makes him clean. Jesus says, I can and be clean. The reason then Jesus tells him to go to the priest is because in Leviticus, if we had read more of chapter 13, he's actually telling them to still follow the Levitical code. When you are made clean, you're to go to the priest and have the priest see that you are then clean. So the priest can say, yes, you're admitted to the tabernacle, back into the people of God. In Luke 8, a woman who's been bleeding for 12 years, sought doctors, sought healing, been bleeding, uh, had bled for 12 years, touched Jesus, and she's healed. Her bleeding stops. Now that means she's clean. Daughter, your faith has made you well. That's what Jesus says to her. Now how can Jesus make us clean? How can He make them clean? Here's what He does. He goes outside the camp in their place. He accepts the penalty of our uncleanness and He takes it away. He literally takes it outside the camp where uncleanness belongs. Hebrews 13 is our constant commentary on Leviticus, uh, the whole book of Hebrews. And Hebrews 13, it reminds us, it literally says, remember where Jesus went to die. He took our uncleanness and it says, and He went outside the camp. So that we don't have to away from the temple, away from God's presence, bearing the penalty for our sin, for our uncleanness as a substitute so that we don't have to be away from the presence of God. The way to healing is by touching the hands of Jesus. He offers to you to go outside of the camp so that you can stay in, to bear our unacceptability so that we can be accepted. He endures the disaster of our imperfection so that we don't have to. If you're in Christ, you have no fear before God. You have nothing to fear about being in His presence. He's taken your uncleanness away. If you want to be fearless in God's presence, all you have to do is trust in Jesus. That's what it means. 
leaning on him by faith, crying like the leper. This is all you have to do. Cry like the leper did to Jesus. Jesus, you can make me clean. Everybody on their own merit is excluded from the presence of God. There's imperfection all throughout. Right? But anybody can be cleaned by Jesus. He makes a way for everybody. But I'll close with the fact that the story doesn't stop right there and there's a calling. His work doesn't stop at the cross when He goes outside the camp for us. That's not where the New Testament stops. That's not where Jesus' story stops. The story goes on because He raises again on the third day. And the promise of God is both the grace and the healing of forgiveness, but it's also joining Him in the resurrection. That's why our dreams are too small. All our dreams are taken away by death. And God's saying, no, I'm not in the business of simply you being financially, materially, relationally successful in this world. I'm in the business of conquering death. We've all made compromise with the brokenness of the world and see small things that are going to be taken away and Jesus is offering resurrection and joy at being in the Lord's presence and that can't be taken away. doesn't make our dreams look small. So the story goes on. But now, lastly, I want to close just with a reminder in verse 14. Uh, and, and I got this from a good friend, an old campus minister, Les Newsom. Towards the end of the passage when people are coming back and being restored into God's presence in chapter 14, something odd happens. If you've been here, you'll know that during the ritual ceremonies, this whole idea of the priest taking some blood and putting it on the lobe and the thumb and the toe was not something that was for lay people. It was only for the priests. It was actually the way the priests were ordained. The, the lay people did not participate in the blood in the same way. Now follow me on this for a second. And so that was a sign that was exclusively given to priests. But all of a sudden here, the sign starts getting applied to everybody when they're made clean. The leper right, gets marked as a priest. The priestly sign is being given to anybody who gets made clean. And it's prefiguring and it's pointing us to this, that Jesus, the high priest, is treated like a leper cut off and lepers get treated like priests once outsiders now access to God's presence but as we go the job of the priest is not simply to enjoy the presence of God here's the other thing the job of a priest is the job of the priest is to bring others with us let's pray